On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Ephesians chapter 5, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, what we do here at Calvary Bible Church is take a book of the Bible, go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we're currently in a study of the book of Ephesians, and we're in chapter 5, kind of moving at a snail's pace, but that's okay. Uh, there's, there's just a whole lot here in the book of Ephesians uh, for us to learn and, and to think about and, and chew upon. And so we've come to this time this morning when we want to hear uh, from God through his word. So if you'll follow along now as I begin reading Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Ephesians chapter 5, 1 through 7. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Western culture and our nation in particular have been given over to sexual immorality. I mean, we live in a sexually immoral, pornographic society. And I don't think that is a surprise to anyone here this morning, but, but perhaps the depth to which we have descended into the abyss of immorality and perversion might be. In a 2022 article produced by the Michigan State University Department of Science, they stated that on the internet there are currently 4 million pornographic websites. 4 million. And they are being trafficked on a daily basis by 80 million people. And so there are more people on those websites than are on Netflix, Twitter, or X, as it's called now, and Amazon combined. A 2023 article in the Ballard Brief stated that pornography exists on 12% of all websites and is viewed by approximately 69% of American men and 40% of American women in any given year. That same article said that uh, one study shows that 58% of Americans have watched pornography at least once in their lifetime, 27% watched it in the past month, 
Another says that one out of three Americans seek porn at least monthly. And of course, along with that is child pornography, which is not only a serious crime, but it is a serious, serious problem in this country. I read that one out of five pornographic images is of a child. Twelve is the average age of entry into porn and prostitution, but their ages are often mislabeled. The sale of child pornography is a $3 billion industry. Over 100,000 websites offer child pornography, and 55% of internet child pornography comes from the United States. Sex trafficking is another serious problem in our nation. An estimated 293,000 children in the United States are in danger of being sexually trafficked. The victims are American children, youth of all ethnicities and all different backgrounds and range, range in age from infants to teens. Investigative research by Shared Hope International reveals that pimps commonly sell minor girls for $400 an hour on America's streets. America's streets. Human rights investigations by Shared Hope International discovered minors were sold an average of 10 to 15 times a day, six days a week. As many as 42 million men and women and children are working as prostitutes worldwide, whether by choice or through forced slavery. One to two million of them are in the United States alone. 18% of married couples experience infidelity. Nearly 23% of married men and 14% of married women have committed adultery, and in those marriages, 69% of them end in divorce. Up to 50% of all divorces in the United States are primarily caused by uh, adulterous affairs. A 2022 Gallup poll found that 7.2% of U.S. adults now identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or something other than straight or heterosexual. The percentage has doubled since Gallup first measured LGBTQ identification in 2012. A Pew Research survey found that 1.6% of U.S. adults are transgender or non-binary. In other words, their gender differs from the sex they were assigned at birth. That same study said that 5.1% of adults younger than 30 are trans or non-binary, including 2% who are a trans man or trans woman and, and 3% who are non-binary. That is, you know, they're neither man nor woman, uh, or they aren't strictly one or the other. And now we're allowing pornographic books and materials in our elementary schools. Public schools and public libraries are participating in Drag Queen Story Hour. I mean, tragically, we have experienced a sexual revolution that has transformed our society into very nearly the image of the pagan Roman Empire of Paul's day that absolutely wallowed in every type of sexual sin and perversion. One man wrote, the moral life of the Greco-Roman world had sunk so low that fornication and adultery had long come to be regarded as a matter of moral indifference and was indulged in without shame or scruple, not only by the mass, but by the philosophers and men of distinction who in other respects led exemplary lives. The Greco-Roman world of that day, including the city of Ephesus, uh, where the church is that Paul is writing to, was noted for moral corruption. And the temple of Artemis offered ritual prostitution as part of its worship. Sexual promiscuity was commonplace. I mean, the emperor Nero was openly homosexual and was known to have been sexually involved with his own mother. 
means sexual immorality and impurity. I mean, the vilest corruption of which the human heart is capable was commonplace in Paul's day, much as it is today. But loved ones, what is most disturbing and absolutely appalling is that much of the professing church has given in to the values of our fallen and depraved culture rather than holding fast to the values of the Word of God. And so now many mainline denominations and and other churches as well not only refuse to call sexual immorality and perversion sin, they even ordain those who openly practice such sin. And worse still, they not only practice sin, they openly promote it. One pastor, and, and he's not really a pastor, or he wouldn't say this, but one man who identifies himself as a pastor said, God is non-binary, queer, and autistic. After receiving some backlash, the pastor insists that Jesus was gay, and that being gay isn't a sin at all. This was a pastor of a church. An Anglican priest suggested that Jesus may well have been homosexual. Had he been devoid of sexuality, he would not have been truly human. To believe that would be heretical. Heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual, he said, Jesus could have been any of these. There could be no certainty which. The homosexual option simply seems the most likely, end quote. That was a bishop in the Anglican church. As Paul said, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And of course, the final straw, as it were, is when immorality is not only tolerated in and by the church, it's done with a certain pride and and often justified in the name of tolerance and love. And that's what we see going on in, in much of the church today. And you'll remember that the Apostle Paul severely rebuked the Corinthian church for their arrogant tolerance of sexual immorality in the church, saying, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagan pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So there was a man in the church uh, who was having an adulterous affair with his father's wife, his stepmother. And then Paul said, and you're arrogant. And they were tolerating. They thought it was, you know, very, very uh, progressive of them. You know, it was very loving and tolerant of them. Paul says, no, you're arrogant. He said, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so to say that Western culture and even some of the visible church is drowning in a cesspool of sexual immorality and purity of, of every kind is an absolute understatement. As we work through the, the final section of Ephesians, we continue Paul's practical instruction about walking worthy of our calling, living out the Christian life. And he began by insisting that Christians must no longer live as they did in spiritual darkness and as pagans still do. He told us to do this by putting off the sinful habits and patterns of the old life, by continually renewing our minds, and by putting on the new life that's ours in Christ. 
And he's given us examples of what our conduct as Christians should be and, and should not be. He commanded us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul has given us sinful, unchristlike attitudes that are to be put away. And, and on the other hand, Christ-like attitudes that we're to cultivate in our lives. And, and then he's told us that we're to be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving as God in Christ forgave us. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul said that we are continually and increasingly to become imitators of God because we are his dearly beloved children. And, and what does that look like and what does that entail? Well, Im imitating God means imitating his dear son, which means walking as he walked. And this means as God's dearly loved children, we are to, as Paul said, and we looked at it last week in Ephesians 5, 2, we're to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I mean, if we are to love as Christ loved us, and gave himself for us, then we're to live lives of unconditional, costly, sacrificial love that manifests itself in serving and meeting the needs of others, regardless of response, regardless of the cost, no matter how unworthy and undeserving the person, or how difficult and inconvenient it may be. And this is to be the distinguishing mark of our lives. This kind of love is the chief virtue that should govern all that we say and do. This is the pattern set for us and commanded of us, not only by the Apostle Paul, but by the Lord Jesus himself. I mean, to walk in love as Christ walked in love and gave himself for us is to lay down our lives for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And now as we come to verses 3 to 14, Paul turns to the issue of, of moral or sexual purity. Paul turns now from the unconditional, self-giving, sacrificial love spoken of in verses 1 and 2 to its very opposite. Self-centered, self-indulgence. So we're going from genuine love now to the perversion of it called lust. The sinful, self-centered, immoral conduct and speech of verses 3 and 4 are the very opposite of the beautiful, Christ-like, self-sacrificial, sacrificing love spoken of in verses 1 and 2. I mean, Paul is just continuing to emphasize the fact that Christians must not live as pagans do. And his concern for holiness required that he deal with this issue of sexuality. And then the same is true today. This issue must be dealt with. And Paul's message here is very direct. He, he's in essence saying... It is pointless for us to claim to be Christians and to hope for salvation if our sexual attitudes and behavior uh, is no different from that of the debauched, lustful society around us. And you know, Jesus emphasized this in his letters to the churches in Revelation. I mean, and just one example, you know, he praised the church in Pergamum for holding fast to his name, but he criticized them, some of them, because some of them practiced were practicing sexual immorality. And he said to them, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. One man said this, any sober consideration of the state of Christians in America today, however, must conclude that we are in need of a similar rebuke, as in many ways we resemble our unbelieving neighbors when it comes to sexual sin. We are at ease in the presence of gross indecency, be it on television, in novels, in newspaper articles, or in person. 
Christians today are more horrified of being seen prudishly blushing than we are of contaminating our hearts and minds with sexual sin. Many Christians think nothing of celebrating adultery in songs that fill their minds or in sitcoms they watch. It's no wonder that surveys show that many Christian teens have sexual practices that are virtually the same as their non-Christian peers, or that stories abound of Christian adults committing adultery, including a shocking number of pastors and elders. And with regard to the issue of Christian teens having sexual practices that are virtually the same as their non-Christian peers, lest you think that is hyperbole. A 1996 survey revealed that 46% of Michigan 5th graders and 55% of 8th graders had engaged in sex. And the study showed that sex is far more common among both age groups than alcohol or drug use. And the leader of the study speculated that the high rates of intercourse could likely be attributed to to television exposure. This was in 96. As far back as 1988, Josh McDowell did a survey that showed that 43% of 18-year-old church-attending youths, 18-year-old church-attending youths, 43% of them, it was found, had had sexual intercourse. And when you broaden it to acts of sexual intimacy, the number went up to 65% among church high school seniors. And I believe it is safe to say that those statistics have not improved since then. And if these statistics alarm you, and they most certainly should, especially if you're raising children, then loved ones, I mean, you must understand the absolute importance of teaching, but not only teaching, but modeling the truth of God's word and his standards of morality and purity. Because that's not what they're getting in school. And don't think that Christian schools uh, are immune from this. But but in saying that, let me just add this before we get into our text. Um, Simply being a moral person is not going to get you into heaven. Of course, none of us has been perfectly moral because Christ raised the standard to mental purity as well when he said that even if we look on a woman to lust or if a woman looks on a man to lust, we've already committed adultery with that person in our hearts. So none of us has been perfectly moral. But even if you can claim uh, that you've always been faithful to your spouse or to to be chaste as a single person, that alone does not qualify you for heaven. Because there are unbelievers who can claim the same thing. That, That is merely moralism. And moralism fails. Moralism does not save. We are not saved by being moral, as we saw in in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so the task for the church and and us as believers is not to seek to make our culture and, and our family and friends more moral but rather to share the gospel with them that they might come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that their hearts and lives are transformed by the power of the gospel and then they will live a holy life. 
regenerated, transformed hearts are the basis for living a holy life and, and walking in a manner that is fully pleasing to the Lord. I mean, we want people uh, to become born-again children of God, not self-righteous moralists. Well, Paul begins in verses 3 and 4 with two lists of sins that we're to avoid. And in verses 5 to 7, Paul gives us two reasons to avoid these sins in the form of a warning. Now, let me read verses 3 and 4, and I'll tell you right now, we're only going to get through verse 3. <laughs> but let me read verses 3 and 4. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. That there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So let's go back now and look at verse 3. And you'll notice this, this verse and this new section uh, begins with the word but. Paul says but. And this word but, it's a word of contrast. Because Paul is wanting to make it perfectly clear that the Christ-like, unselfish, sacrificial love which Christ calls us to stands in stark contrast with the selfish and self-indulgent, lustful love of the pagan world. And regarding the world's love, one commentator wrote this, that kind of love is selfish and destructive, a deceptive counterfeit of God's love. It is always conditional and is always self-centered. It is not concerned about commitment, but only satisfaction. It is not concerned about giving, but only getting. It has no basis for permanence because its purpose is to use and to exploit rather than to serve and to help. It lasts until the one loved or the one lusted after no longer satisfies or until he or she disappears for someone else. That's the world's love. And so it's not surprising then that the lustful love of the world inevitably leads to immorality and impurity and all kinds of filthiness. But God's standard for moral purity is absolute, not relative, it's absolute, and thus it's not debatable. And so let's look at this now as Paul uh, begins to list these sins. And the first sin he lists is sexual immorality. It's a Greek word translated, uh, the Greek word translated here as sexual immorality is, is the word porneia, from which we get our English words pornographic and pornography. And literally it means whore writing. Whore writing. That's what it literally means. And originally, it did not refer to lewd pictures or films. It's come to include that. But originally, it referred to any kind of illegitimate sexual intercourse outside marriage, especially adultery and sexual relations with prostitutes. And so in older versions of, of, of the Bible, porneia was, was translated fornication. But today, this word has come to have a much broader meaning. It refers to any form of illicit sexual behavior. I mean, every kind of, of immoral sexual relation. And so it would include adultery, premarital sexual activity, homosexuality, lesbianism, incest, prostitution, pedophilia, bestiality. I mean, any and all illicit sexual behavior are included in this word immorality. I mean, any kind of sexual behavior outside the marriage relationship between one man and one woman falls into the category of sexual immorality. 
And Paul places this sin first because it's so harmful and devastating to the individual and to society. And, because it, and also because it displays uh, more graphically the selfishness, self-centeredness, and rebellion against God's norm that marks uh, other sins as well. And so these sins covered under sexual immorality and all other such sins, are they're not of God. They're not of the Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit never leads anyone into any kind of unholy sexual behavior which the Word of God condemns. I mean, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, in the second, last part of verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. He said in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. And then to the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5, Paul said, for this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Look, God created sex. Man didn't come up with the idea. God created sex at the very beginning. And he created sex not only for procreation, but for our pleasure and for our enjoyment, but within the context of marriage. I mean, sex is to be enjoyed by one genetic woman and one genetic man within the confines of marriage. And any sexual activity that does not fit that definition is not to be part of a believer's life, period. And so that means no sex until marriage. It means no sex outside of marriage. I mean, without marriage, no sex. And let's just, let me just say that although the world thinks that we as Christians are prudes and that we're you know, against fun in general, but we're especially against any kind of sexual pleasure, uh, I mean, that, that nothing could be further from the truth. Now, sure, unfortunately, there are Christians like that. And in the past, the church hasn't done a very good job with regard to the issue of sexuality. But the Bible's teaching uh, on sex is not negative, not at all. The Bible does not have a negative view of sex. I mean, far from it. As one commentator wrote, the Bible and the Christian faith have an extremely high view of sex, much higher, he said, uh, than the pagans have. We look upon sex as a gift from God to be enjoyed faithfully, reverently, and passionately. For Christians, love comes from God and is holy and, and wholesome, and the same is true of sex within the designed bonds of marriage. It too is holy and wholesome. And this, he said, is the difference between the pagan and the Christian view of sexuality. Not that they are liberated and we are prudes. Instead, while the sinful world looks upon sex as its master, Christians look upon sex as a servant of a deeper, more substantial love that mirrors the love of God. And that's true. You see, the, the marriage relationship is the closest 
most intimate relationship on the face of the earth. I mean, it is to be a love relationship that is so deep and so tender and so intimate because it portrays to the world Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. And in marriage, a husband and wife, you know, they become one flesh. You know, which certainly involves sexual intimacy, but it involves much more than that. It, it also involves an ever-deepening, intimate knowledge of one another that just continues to grow. And, and this love and, and deep intimacy of the marriage relationship, including sexual intimacy, is meant, again, to depict the deep, intimate, pure love that Christ has for his bride. But you see what happens is when we take that, that beautiful image and we use it outside of the marriage covenant, we give a, a horribly marred, ugly picture of, of, the, of the covenant that Christ has made with His church. And so we get instead this, this image of a harlot whoring herself and, and bringing disgrace upon her husband. And this is what the nation of Israel did in the Old Testament. Every time she turned her back on the Lord and began to worship the Baals and, and Ashtoreth. And so then we have the book of Hosea. And you know the story. The prophet Hosea, at the Lord's instruction, purposefully married a prostitute to be a literal physical image of Israel's sin and the, and the heart-rending, covenant-breaking, spiritual adultery that they were committing against God. And when we see sexual immorality, whether it's adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, lesbianism, transgenderism, child abuse, we know that it's wrong. And even unbelievers know that it's wrong. That's why they hide when they do it and do it in the dark and keep it a secret. Because they know in their heart, they inherently know that these things are wrong, that God forbids them. And it is a sin-sick, twisted society that accepts this kind of behavior among its citizens. So Paul says, but sexual immorality. And then the second sin on his list is all impurity. All impurity. This word originally meant the state of being dirty. I mean, it's the opposite of the word for cleanse or clean. And the word was used medically to describe an oozing wound, which would make a person ceremonially unclean. And in Scripture, the term is used of both moral and ceremonial uncleanness. You know, any impurity that prevents a person uh, from, from approaching God. In the New Testament, Jesus used the word to describe the, the rottenness of decaying bodies in a tomb in Matthew 23, 27. But the Apostle Paul uses the word almost exclusively of moral, moral impurity or moral uncleanness. He always associates it with sexual sin. And it sometimes conveys the idea uh, also of perversion. And so it's a more general term than, than sexual immorality in that it, it refers to anything that is unclean and filthy. It's any kind of sexual sin. It's, it's being morally impure. 
So this is moral impurity in all forms. It's, it's marked by a sensual heart and a filthy mind. It, it refers to immoral thoughts and passions, ideas and fantasies, and, and every other form of sexual corruption caused by the lusts of the heart. It leads to sexual sin and the dishonoring of one's body. And impurity, obviously, is not to be indulged in by believers. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4.7, Paul wrote, For God has not called us for impurity. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. You'll notice Paul says, all impurity. All impurity. You know what the word all means in the Greek? All. Yeah, that's right. All. Paul says all impurity. And so this covers all sexual immorality, all impurity, whether you're married or unmarried. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're single, you may think, well, this really doesn't apply to me because I'm not involved in sexual immorality, or perhaps you think you're immune to this. But all impurity expands Paul's focus to all impurity having to do with sex, not necessarily the sex act. And so whether it's being involved in heavy kissing and petting, you know, to accessing sexually impure materials online or carrying on sexually impure relationships with others on social media, whether it's young men and women having sexually suggestive conversations with each other or enticing each other, even with explicit photos from their phones. I mean, these impure types of flirting with sexual immorality are not consistent with being a child of God. As Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 2, we are to live no longer for human passions, that is, for ungodly lusts of the flesh, but for the will of God. And so if you're, you know, if, if we're imitators of, of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, then all impurity, any type of sexual impurity, has absolutely no place in our lives, and we're to put it away. Put it away, because what is acceptable in our society is not acceptable for Christians. Sexual immorality, all impurity, and then thirdly, Paul writes of covetousness. Covetousness. And covetousness is last, because it is the evil root from which all the previous sins flow. I mean, it's, it's also mentioned last, in the Ten Commandments. You know, covetousness can also be translated greed. In fact, it's translated greedy in Ephesians 4.19. And it means to have more. It's an insatiable desire to gain more, especially of things that are forbidden. It's the longing for something that belongs to someone else. As such, James tells us it is the source of fights and quarrels, as well as lusts, passion, and sin. Covetousness is the desire or the lust for more so that a person can fulfill themselves without any regard for God or for others. And all sexual immorality has greed as its motive because it's based on the selfish, self-centered lust for personal gratification, not on love and commitment to the other, to the other person's good. In fact, behind all sin, 
There is the root of covetousness, which Paul saw as being equivalent to idolatry, as though the, the two, two sins were almost one and the same. And they most certainly are. And this shouldn't surprise us when we recall that the Old Testament commandment against covetousness in the Ten Commandments was stated in these terms, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. I mean, Paul links sexual immorality and covetousness and idolatry here in our passage in verse 5. And so when people sin, at its basis, it's their doing what they desire rather than what God desires. And as one man said, that is in essence to worship themselves instead of God. And that, he said, is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. It is idolatry that grows out of a dissatisfaction with what God has given I mean, in essence, it is the belief that some object, experience, or possession will bring fullness to your life. In other words, uh, these things come before God. They relegate God to a, a secondary position. And so you, you see how this works? You know, you're not content with your spouse, so you take someone else's. You're not content with your relationship, so you seek to augment it through pornography or prostitution and, and other lusts. And even as you get older, you may not crave the sexual, but you'll transfer your desires to the material. Because discontent leads to sin. And so the best response is to seek contentment, to, to arrive at a settled conviction that my present circumstances in every respect, including my present sex life or, or lack of one, are what God wants for me at the present, and that God always knows best. You see, a contented person will not desire to violate another person sexually or covet anything that person owns. And so whether you're married, you're a married adult, a single adult, or a teenager, there's no sexual immorality or impurity that does not begin with the inward desire of covetousness, a desire for what you don't have. And remember Jesus' words in, in, in the Gospel of Mark, in, in chapter 7, verse 20 through 23. Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Covetousness, it's a sexual desire for that to which you have absolutely no right. You see, the Apostle Paul, I mean, he understood the inherent dangers of sexual sin. And the Apostle Paul knew it harmed the individual himself, that it was a sin against one's own body. He knew that it ruins and destroys relationships and families. He, he knew that it contributes to, to the independent anti-God spirit and that it represents a lack of self-control. He also knew the strong sexual nature of human beings and that because sexual sin is so powerful and can become 
so perverted in unimaginable ways that if given free reign, sexual sin leads to complete insensitivity to the feelings and the welfare of others. In fact, it cares nothing about others. Because when people become inflamed with lust, they're blinded. They're blinded to the devastation and the destruction their sin will bring, and some of it will last lifelong. But when they become inflamed with lust, the lure of sexual sin seems so attractive, so promising, so fulfilling, that people will do anything to fulfill their desire. They'll do anything to fulfill their desire to have the one or the object lusted after, no matter what. They could care less about anyone else. And so spouses are forsaken, children are neglected, marriages and homes are destroyed, family and friends are disregarded, all to satisfy their lusts. And they give little thought to the lifelong consequences of their actions because in that moment they don't care about anything but themselves. And these sins cannot in any way be justified, not by any Uh, stretch of the imagination. And they should never in any way be tolerated. Well, someone might say, well, you know, just how sexually pure are Christians expected to be? Well, I think if you ask that question, you haven't been listening, but just in case... (laughs) Just in case someone is thinking, you know, how sexually pure are Christians supposed to be? You know, I mean, you might be thinking, well, I know our society is obsessed with sinful sex, but should we be expected to, you know, be totally separate from these things? (laughs) Well, what does the Bible say? Because that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what you think or I think. What matters is, what does the Bible say? And Paul answers that sexual immorality, impurity, and lustful covetousness, all things that characterize the old self, look back at verse 3, must not even be named among you. And the point is made a little better in in the New International Version, which says, there must not even be a hint of these things among Christians. This is the biblical standard of our calling to sexual purity. This is God's standard. And as one man said, this standard needs to be emphasized because the idea has gotten around that sexual purity involves nothing more than preserving one's technical virginity. But, he said, there is a wide range of sexually intimate behavior that is designed for marriage alone including intense sexual conduct and intimate sexual speech. So Paul says sexual immorality, all impurity, and covetousness must not even be named among believers. And when Paul says that these sinful practices should not even be named among God's people, he's not violating his own advice by naming or mentioning them. No, he's simply declaring that these sins have absolutely no place in the life of any believer. He's saying that an outsider, an unbeliever, who watches the daily conduct of Christians should never have an opportunity to name one of these sins as characterizing the lifestyle of any believer or any member of the church. 
and that a believer in the church should never see another fellow believer committing any of these sinful practices. Paul says there must not even be a hint of these things among Christians. And of course, this is where a lot of believers fail. Because they don't understand how dangerous, first of all, how powerful, and secondly, how dangerous sexual immorality is. There's a reason we're told to flee. It's powerful, it's dangerous. And people don't realize that, and so therefore they open the door to you know, sexually charged music, sexually explicit movies, TV shows, and, and internet sites, and all these things uh, have an effect. And, and if you could continue in this, you can be drawn to a sexual addiction, which is sin, by the way. It's not a sickness, it's a sin. You know, they reason, well, you know, little won't hurt. But they don't realize that lust is like a a small flame, it's like a pilot light. But it has the ability to fan into a, a roaring fire. You know, enough to burn down an entire forest. Believers also fail in this area when they they follow the world's model in their dating relationships. You know, opening the door to the enemy. They reason that, hey, you know, a little bit won't hurt. Little intimate touching, that's just kind of normal for the dating relationship. But by doing this, they're fanning the fire of lust. And again, it's it's a powerful and, and dangerous sin. That's why we're told to flee. And you play with it, and you fan that fire of lust, it can can lead to immorality. So Paul said, shouldn't he be named among the saints? Don't even allow a hint of sexual immorality in your life. And, And he gives the reason for this high calling to sexual purity. I mean, these things shouldn't be named among us, he says, as is proper among saints. In other words, it's not proper. These things shouldn't be among us because it's just not proper in any way, shape, or form for these sins to be practiced among God's people. And so someone is bound to say, well, you know what, if I, if I were a saint, then maybe I, I should be sexually pure. Well, <laughs> if you're a Christian, you are a saint. Because the word saint means holy one. And every single born-again child of God is a saint. Because we have all been sanctified or set apart as holy unto the Lord. Every believer is a saint. It's not just some special class of of person. Every child of God is a saint. And as saints, we're, we're called to be holy and blameless before God. To put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true Righteousness and holiness and our behavior must be consistent with our new identity as God's chosen people who have been been given a holy calling. You know, how we act shows what we as Christians think about our Lord whose name we bear and who suffered on the cross to make us holy. And so if we as believers are involved in the sins that Paul has mentioned, Well, it it absolutely uh, undermines the credibility of the church. And even worse than that, it brings reproach 
upon the name of our Lord and upon his people. You know, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet called him out on it, David repented. And Nathan said to David, and and if I can remember it exactly, he said, David, God will forgive your sin, but because of what you have done, you have given enemies of the Lord great reason to bring reproach upon his name. You know, our our dark, sinful world actually supports and and promotes immorality and, and impurity. In fact, almost any kind of sexual expression is encouraged on television and movies and, and especially online. In fact, I mean, many believe that the free expression of sexuality is harmless and even healthy, wrongly assuming that nobody gets hurt. Well, that's a lie from the pit. The sexual immorality only degrades our humanity. It never enhances it. It turns humans created in the image of God into objects created for gratifying our own selfish desires. It doesn't get more selfish and self-centered than that. And that is why Paul warns us that, not even, that there should not even be a hint of this thing, a hint of these things in the lives of believers. I mean, This is the biblical standard. This is God's standard of sexual purity. And loved ones, God's standard is to be the standard of all of his children. There are no exceptions. There are no special cases. God's standard is to be the standard of all of his children. And Paul continues his warning in verse 4 by mentioning a list of related sins. But we're going to save the rest for next week, Lord willing. We'll never get through this. We'll be here till 2 o'clock. But it's time to stop. Not only because we want to come to the Lord's table together, but because this is, this is heavy stuff. And there's sometimes you just need to stop and think about what you've heard. Now, after hearing all of this, someone might be thinking, well, And I was really sexually immoral in my past life. So what about the the sexual immorality in my past life before I was a Christian? You know, where where does all this leave me? Let me read you something. If you want to turn there, you can. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And we'll reference this verse again next week, I'm sure. So if you have a a sexually immoral past in your past life, but you're a believer in Christ now, where does this leave you? Well, let me read this to you. Paul says, do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. Such were some of us. And then the next word, but, there's that word of great contrast. Paul says, this is what you used to be. 
says, but, what? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Isn't that good news? You know, if you're a born-again child of God, when you came to faith in Christ, all your sin, including all of your sexual sins, were paid for. And you've been washed and cleansed. Your sins forgiven. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so what about your sexual immoral past, the sins of the past? They're all gone. They're all gone. Jesus paid it all. He wiped the slate clean. Well, what about those here this morning who, you know, as believers, have fallen into sexual sin? I mean, maybe you're in the, in the grips of long-term sexual failure. You know, it may be pornography or or cravings that rule you. It may be an inability to say no. It may be a romantic relationship that has already gone way too far sexually. Is there an answer for you? And if so, what is it? Well, yes, there's an answer. And his name is Jesus. Because there's hope for every sinner at the cross, isn't there? And so if that's you, you've fallen into that kind of sin, take your sin to the cross. Take your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sin, who takes away all your guilt and who will wash you and cleanse you. You know, as John said in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you've fallen into these sins, take your sin to the cross, confess it to Jesus. But not only confess it, forsake it. You know, as Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. And then rejoice in the fact that the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all our sin. Isn't that wonderful news? That is such good news. Because all of us have some type of immorality in our past. But in Christ, we've been forgiven. We're new creatures. New creations in Christ. That's just such wonderful news. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see